The number 24 is a special jersey number in the NFL's history, especially for defensive backs. In this edition of the Football by Numbers on 24s, we have historian Dana Auguster joining us once again to find a top 24s in NFL history. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. This is your host, Darren Hayes, and we're podcasting from the Pigpen on America's North Shore, bringing you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So with Gene and Mike Monroe, as well as Jason Neff's appliance with the great tunes, let's go no huddle through today's top stories of American football history. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com, and welcome once again to the Pigpen. Today on the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch podcast, we are proud to present the very special bonus edition of the Football by Numbers, where we're going to look at the top players in the NFL history that wore the number 24. Joining us for this quest is my fellow Sports History Network partner, Dana Auguster, host of the Historically Speaking podcast. Dana, welcome back to the Pigpen. Hey, man, thanks for having me, man. I'm once again, I'm very honored and flattered to be back here. And um, I'm, just, I'm just getting back my clothes from the dry cleaners from the last time I was here in the pig pen. But um, I appreciate it. I like being here. Well, we're, we're sure glad to have you. And uh, we're very appreciative you're here. And uh, just for I, you know, I know our listeners cannot get the visual of you, but uh, Dana came on and I, you know, we're, we're looking at each other through a Zoom call and he has got a Pittsburgh Pirates hat on and tells me he is a big Pirates fan. And uh, that really got the ball rolling. I knew I liked Dana. I like him even more now. I've been a Pirates fan ever since I was little, and um, when I first started watching baseball, that was like the team to watch, and that was with that was the Pittsburgh Pirates. And um, and it's interesting you brought that up because I didn't mention this while we were talking before uh, we came on, but the next podcast that I'm working on, uh, we'll be, we will be talking about the 1971 Pirates, who stands in baseball history as the first baseball team to field are all black and hispanic lineup and i'm going to be talking about that in this week's podcast um that's that's on right now so when you get a chance hit me up on the historically speaking sports podcast hit me up right here on the sports history network and you check it out well i know i'm definitely going to as soon as we get done uh recording here i'm gonna check that out but uh yeah folks go right over there check his out and even some of his past episodes they are just filled with history and uh, dana does a great job of hitting social media every day with multiple posts of uh you know appropriate uh for the day uh sports history of all sports and it's just like a great thing we really enjoy it i appreciate you having me once again i, I love that that's but that's like a passion of mine and that's something that i try to do every day religiously um and sometimes i find some things sometimes i have to really dig for some but most of the time hey i'm there all right man we're, we're right with you well we have a tough challenge today my friend because we are going to look at the 101 years of nfl history now and we're going to look at the greatest players that wore the jersey number 24 and there is really a lot of good players on here and the uh, hall of fame sort of starts us off and i'm going to run through real quickly who the hall of fame is uh, telling us that uh wore number 24 that's enshrined in canton and that's willie brown champ bailey willie wood charles woodson ty law lenny moore Jack Christensen and Johnny Blood McNally. 
And I don't think I missed anybody there, but uh, maybe that's a good place for us to start off and just at least talk about uh, some of these great players that really played for a long time with number 24 on also. But they are, they are a great bevy of uh, great players. They wore the number 24 throughout history. While I was doing my research, I was surprised to see as many that wore the number 24. You know, John, going all the way back to Johnny Blood McNally and Jack Christensen in the 1950s, you know, all the way up to present day players. Well, sort of present day, you know, Marshawn Lynch, he's retired, but he's pretty um, modern, I, I guess you would say. A whole lot of Charles Woodson, who just recently was inducted into the hall, a whole lot of different players and a lot of players that's not so famous that I would like to touch on a little bit for my own personal reasons, I guess you could say. Well, we want to we want to touch all of them because you know when, if they were substantial and they were the number twenty four, we want to talk about them because we want to find the ten greatest players that wore that number twenty four, and it's a tall task. I know is, because there's really so many is. good ones, and you, you hate to leave anybody out. But if we if we got to go that extend that list, we will because it might be one of those cases where we might have to. No, oh, yeah, we yeah, it, it, it may we may have to because of looking at some of these guys that's on the list, you know, that's outside of those Hall of Famers. You be hard pressed to try to squeeze ten into that that, that bevy of ten. So we'll see where the night takes us. Okay, uh, where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with our Hall of Famers first. We'll start talking about them. Uh, I'll let you pick one of those to to talk about, and uh, we'll start our study here. Okay, the first one I want to talk about is a little bit personal for me because when I was eleven years old, I was playing pee wee football. I guess in Pennsylvania, y'all call it little gritters. Yeah, we, we call it a bunch of different things. So to... Okay, but um, I was 11 and playing, and they had me playing running back, a small, undersized running back, mainly used on third down. And one of the coaches since, you know, saw that I would, could catch the ball out of the backfield pretty well. So he was like, you're going to be out anymore. Now, as an 11-year-old kid playing in the early 1980s, I had no idea who Lenny Moore was. And as luck would have it, like maybe three weeks or so later, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a show on ESPN that came on every Monday night called The Men Who Played the Game, hosted by Steve Sable. And as luck would have it, they did like a little little small thing on Lenny Moore. I was so impressed by him that I was like, now I see what they're talking about. And I was so impressed by him with his moves and his speed and his catching ability. The one play that sticks out with me with Lenny Moore was that Johnny United threw a pass to him in the back corner of the end zone against the Lions in a playoff game, I want to say. And he caught this ball diving in the back of the end zone. And I would just, my mouth would just like open like, how, how he caught that, you know, and he explained it and everything and how it was like a higher power that was that enveloped him. We was able to catch that ball from Unitas and it was an incredible play. So Lenny Moore is a person who I like to start off with. OK, uh, yeah, he is definitely an interesting character to, to look at. You know, one thing I remember about him was his the, the way he would tape up his shoes, like in a spat style, like marching bands, because he would tape outside of his cleats, which he was like one of the first people to ever do that. And I was like, this is the dude I want to be like. And he pretty much set the tone for a lot of the running backs in the 80s, like Roger Craig and even further along down the lineup, guys like LaDainian Tomlinson, guys who could catch the ball equally as well as running the ball between the tackles and out, and the outside. Yeah, uh, most definitely. Uh, 
I mean, he's got an interesting statistic. I mean, most of his career, uh, he was listed as a, you know, a right halfback or, you know, just a halfback, but he had one year in the middle of his career, 1963, he was listed as the left end and he didn't have a whole lot of games. So he must've had some injury, but if you look at his career stats, he has uh, 5,174 rushing yards and 6,039 receiving yards. So that tells you that they were swinging the ball to him uh, quite a bit from Unitas. Well, I mean, you look at that offense that they had with Unitas running the show. You had Lenny Moore, and then you had Raymond Berry on the outside. You know, I think you had Jim Mutchler at the tight end. Um, you had some weapons there. And they were just incredible to, to, you know, just watch, you know, and I know they caused a lot of problems, especially with dual threat likely anymore. Uh, yeah. Um, I had Upton Bell uh, who on a few weeks, a couple months ago, and Upton was the player personnel of the 1960s Colts. So he uh, was on the Colts when, uh, when the player personnel, when they played the Jets in Super Bowl three, and when they won Super Bowl five, Lenny Moore was on both those teams. And he just uh, was really said that's his favorite team of all time, you know, that he was close to. And remember his father was Burt Bell who owned the Philadelphia Eagles and the Pittsburgh right. Steelers for years and years. And he was also with the Patriots for a little bit, but he loved those 1960s uh, Baltimore Colts, especially the offense, very endearing to him. And Lenny Moore is one of those uh, players he really enjoyed. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can see, easy to see that. And he also, you know, he's still living, he's still part of the, I think he's still around and um, he just seemed like he's just a, just a tremendous, tremendous person, you know, from what I've read about him. Absolutely. Uh, just to follow up on his stats, he had 63 rushing touchdowns and 48 uh, receiving touchdowns, you know, pretty well balanced on the yardage and the, the scoring uh, just a, a dual threat. Definitely. Yeah, especially during that period of time when you ran the ball way more than you threw it, and having a basically the 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 balance between the running between uh, rushing touchdowns and receiving touchdowns is just incredible, especially during the fifties and sixties. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's a, definitely a great one to bring up. Where do you want to go to next with our Hall of Famers? Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention the second guy on our list. And um, because my dad would pretty much kill me if I didn't mention him. (laughs) Um, My dad is a hardcore Raiders fan. And my dad calls him the gentleman Raider. And we're talking about, of course, Willie Brown. Now, when you talk about defensive backs, he's the first defensive back that we're going to talk about. And when you talk about DBs, you talk about... Uh, if you're, you pretty much make your career, if you have a pick six in a postseason game, if you just have one, some really good ones have two, this man has three. Okay. Yeah. And one was against the dolphins in 1970 greasy threw a pass on the outside. I think it was either to Mark Fleming or might've been Paul Warfield on a muddy track against the, against it at, um, at the Oakland Coliseum against Miami. He took it to the house. The second one, I know you're the host, and I know this is your show, but I have to break it to you. He victimized Terry Bradshaw once in 1973, <laughs> threw a pass on the outside, tried to get it to Preston Pearson, and he took it to the house against him in the 73 divisional playoffs to bring them to the AFC Championship game that year. And, of course, the third one was against the Minnesota Vikings in Super Bowl Eleven, where he took it to the house to pretty much clinch their first Super Bowl win. So Willie Brown – was the gentleman raider. He was 
you know, the one Raider that didn't really trash talk a lot, unlike the guys like Atkinson and Jack Tatum and Lester Hayes and those guys. But uh, Willie Brown was probably, you know, of all of those DBs that the Raiders had, he was probably the most cerebral, the most intelligent, the most, and he may not have been the most athletic, but he definitely had a mind for the game that was fit right into that scheme that Madden was was preaching in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, most definitely. Now, I uh, talked to a John Turney at the uh, Pro Football Journal, and he has got some really outstanding stats that I've never seen before. Uh, you got to check it out. It's a really good site, profootballjournal.com. And on Willie Brown, we have uh, some stats that, uh, you know, we know he has 54 interceptions, 204 games played. His passes defense was 302 is what uh, John has down and 513 total tackles, both solo and combination tackles. You know, just a, a great all around player. And like you said, those three touchdowns uh, off the picks, those are uh, some great numbers. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, you know, um, my dad's a big Raider fan and some of the big arguments that I would hear when I was growing up between my dad, who's a Raiders fan and, and, um, and my godfather, who was a big giants fan, they used to go back and forth on who was better between him and someone you're probably going to be talking about a little bit later on spider Lockhart for the giants, you know, who was better, you know, and they used to have big knockdown drag out discussions about that arguments or whatever you want to call it. But I call it discussions because it was Christmas time (laughs) anyway. (laughs) Um, But, um, but yeah, Willie Brown is right up there as far as like the greatest, one of the greatest. I think I put him up in the top two as greatest ever to wear number 24. I don't just totally disagree with you either, but uh, let's, uh, I, I think that we can probably lock him into our, our list here. Uh, we'll, I'll put him on the list right now. We'll give him a spot on that. And one last thing about Willie Brown. He went to my, he went to Grambling state university, which is the, my arch rival of my alma mater, Southern university. So I have to throw that in there. <laughs> it seems like uh, that last time you were on with numbers, we had a few of your arch rivals from Grambling. Yes. Coach, yes, Coach Eddie yes. Robinson was coaching them up over there. You know, it, you know, it, you know, it. You, you, we got to give all, all respect to the, in my opinion, the greatest HBCU head coach ever. And that's Eddie Robinson. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, where do we want to go next? You want to stay on the, the hall of fame DBs? Yeah. another hall of fame DB, like I said, I just mentioned, um, who just entered the hall of fame not too long ago. And that's Charles Woodson played, uh, for the Raiders as well as the Packers got a Super Bowl ring with the Packers. Um, another knockdown, um, DB won the Heisman trophy, which is something that you don't normally see a DB winning. Um, he was, you know, a hard hitter, but at the same time, he was also a ball hawk. So he's basically a complete total package for a DB. He could hit, he could tackle very fundamentally sound, but he also could defend passes and pick off passes when need to. Now, this is an amazing stat, you know, going to uh, the Pro Football Journal on this. He had 65 interceptions in 254 games, 205 passes defense. But this next uh, stat was just astounding me because it blew everybody away. Uh, that's on the number 24. He had 1,205 tackles. Uh, he's the only uh, four-digit tackler that I had of this group of DBs wearing the number 24. 
Yeah, he was an outstanding tackler even when he was at the University of Michigan. Uh, he was an outstanding tackler. He was he wasn't afraid to get his nose dirty. He definitely, that was definitely true with him. Um, but uh, Charles Woodson is one of the all-time greats, and I think that as time goes on, that people are going to start to realize how great of a DB he was and how important to the game he was, you know, with his tackling and, and everything, trying to develop the next long, the next line of great defensive backs to come through the league. And he's going to be one of those guys that a lot of the newer DBs that's coming into the league is going to look at and say, I want to be like that guy. He, a lot of the, the guys that's coming in, he's going to try to emulate over time. Yeah, absolutely. Now we had, uh, I had Oz Davis on last week with the number 21s and we talked quite a bit about Charles and uh, you know, Deion Sanders is on that list with the 21s too. And we've talked about them not only for their defensive prowess, but they both played a little bit of offense and they were great uh, special teams, you know, especially in return game, they were just uh, outstanding. But Charles, Charles uh, Woodson was, uh, you know, he was if, probably one of your modern uh, two-way players, you know, if, if we have that anymore. But him and Dion both, we could say that about. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing that I kind of forget about with him is that he was a two-way player. You know, that just gives you an idea. And you have to be an athlete to play defensive back. I tried it. I attempted to as I was in high school, but didn't play all that well. But still in all, um, playing DB is something that, is very very you know difficult. You be have to have an you have to have a thick skin and you have to have athleticism and and that's something that uh, Charles Woodson had in abundance during his time with the Packers and the Raiders. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I, and he's another one that I think uh, we should he should get an automatic place on this list. And uh, we'll, we'll make your dad proud because that's uh, two Raiders we're putting on this list so far. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because like I said, it's, it, if I don't, I'm I'm, I'm have to hear about it. But anyway, because you <laughs> listen to everything I do, so. <laughs> well, there you go. You're uh, you're going to be the favorite son this week because you have a favorite team, uh, first two players on the on the board. <laughs> there you go. All right, uh, next guy I want to go to is is Willie Wood of the Green Bay Packers. Okay, who was you know who was you know the backbone of that great defensive you know can you imagine the quarterbacks uh that in the 60s that had to go on one side you had Willie Wood on the other side Herb Averly yeah that's a that, tough, tough that, game that, there that's something to deal with you know and that, I mean of course the Packers were a hard-nosed ground attack and everybody talks about the running game and and, and their offense with Bart Starr but not too many people talk about their defense. They talk about Nitschke and they talk about the others, but they don't talk about the defensive backfield. And Willie Wood was the anchor of that backfield along with Herb Adderley. But Willie Wood, you could, he could, you could, you could match him up with anybody and he would basically shut them down. You know, you don't really hear too much about him being that quote unquote shutdown corner. But he was just as good as anybody doing that era, as shutting down their main receiver. And not, not to mention you have um, Adderley on the other side, which is, you know, in, impressive to say the least. And it, it, I know he caused a lot of problems and gave a lot of headaches to quarterbacks and offensive coordinators during that time. Oh, absolutely. Now, 
I had, uh, again, uh, Pro Football Journal, John Turney had a nice little write-up on Willie Wood. Uh, we lost him uh, last year, I believe it was. Uh, yeah. He passed away. But John Turney has a real nice description for our younger listeners that may not appreciate him. In just these two sentences, he says, for the first five years of his career, Willie Wood was a dynamite punt returner and also a kickoff specialist at times, too. He led the NFL in picks in 1962 and wears five NFL championship rings with those Green Bay Packers. You know, just uh, some great words from uh, John Turney about him. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the Packers were just loaded with athletes, you know, on both sides of the ball, but you don't really know about it or realize it because simply the type of offense and the type of games that they played didn't really warrant a lot of athleticism. They just beat you just by sheer force and fundamentals. And which is the basics, which is basically the backbone of any great NFL team, the flashiness and the swagger and everything that comes later on, of course. But, you know, how good are those, how good were those Green Bay Packers, you know, especially on that back half of that secondary, back half of that defense with those two, especially with Adderley and Wood in the backfield. And Wood had, didn't he have the very first interception in Super Bowl history? Uh, he could could have. I, I'm not sure. I don't. I remember that. him picking off a pass to, against Dawson in that third quarter in Super Bowl one. I think it might have been the very first pass intercepted in Super Bowl history, and he brought it all the way back to like the one, the two, the inside the five, which basically broke the game open. I think that I believe that was him. I it it could be. Him. It could be. It's like like you said, though, they had a lot of good uh, stars in that defensive backfield for the, the Packers in those days. They were just some great teams. But uh, yeah, yeah Will, Willie Wood. Uh, there, here's a quote from Raymond Barry that played against Willie Wood quite a bit. And he goes, Willie gave the Packers the ability to call one defense and get many interceptions off it. He smells a play. He takes off on his own and breaks up a play should have never been near. You know, that's, you know, that's from one of the top uh, receivers of the NFL at that time in Raymond Berry. You know, Raymond Berry was probably the, one of those sneaky types. He was, you know, for the younger listeners, Raymond Berry, if I had to compare him to somebody now, it would probably be somebody like Julian Edelman or Wes Welker type of guy. You know, very not fast, not overly big, but just so precise with his route that he would just get open so easily. And he's a Hall of Famer. And and Willie Wood and Raymond Berry and those Colt Packer rivalry games during the 1960s were just epic. You know, and those two going head to head, I would pay just to watch just that matchup with, with those two. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, United slinging the ball <laughs> had to be a special treat for the fans in those days. I wish I yeah, could have uh, been old enough to enjoy it <laughs> mm-hmm. myself. Okay, well, I think uh, I think you convinced me there. I think Willie Wood ought to be on our list too. So that that takes up three of our spots here so yeah. far. Uh, we've got Lenny Moore off on the side here for, for right now, but uh, those three DBs are just outstanding. And uh, I think they definitely deserve spots on there. Yeah. Now, next one I want to go to is someone that is from this, from my neck of the woods where, where I am now, which is Georgia played at the university of Georgia, went to the Denver Broncos, a man by the name of champ Bailey. And I remember watching him in college, being a kid, grew up in the South, watched SEC football. I remember when he first came to Georgia and 
moved on to the Denver Broncos, and he was another shutdown corner, but didn't really get a whole lot of notoriety because he was just such a solid player. You know, um, he's he's in the Hall of Fame, if I'm not mistaken. And um, yes, he is. And he, he was just so just a solid defensive back, especially for you know the, those 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 Denver Bronco teams in the early 2000s. You know, and he was just such a solid, solid defensive back. But you never really heard too much about him. But he would never—I don't re- recall ever hearing him really get beat on a play. You know, just flat out just beaten by a receiver. He's so fundamentally sound, so fun, so athletically gifted, and he was just such of a brainy player during his career in the NFL, which wasn't that long ago. You know, he just you know, with him being in the Hall of Fame, like wow, he's been out of the league that long, but he played like for a long for a lot of years, I believe. Yeah, uh, he played from 1999 to 2013. Uh, 15 seasons started off with Washington was part of that big blockbuster trade that uh, the Redskins and the Broncos had. And, uh, you know, they, they switched uh, the running back uh, escapes my name right now. Uh, Clinton Portis. Clinton Portis. Yes. He was, uh, I, I would think that was a one for one trade on there, but it was a big yeah. trade at the time and it worked out well for both teams and for both players. So they both had success. Yeah. Um, but Champ Bailey, you know, again, was a shutdown corner when he was at Georgia. I remember watching him when they used to terrorize LSU. Um, but that's another story. Um, but, um, yeah, Champ Bailey was just an, just an unbelievable, solid defensive back for a lot of years in the National Football League. Absolutely. And uh, I forgot, I should mention that now uh, probably you got the credit for mentioning the two Raiders, but now saying talking about a Denver Bronco pops probably uh, took away a gold star from you now, but uh, champ Bailey is that good. He needs to be talked about the 24s. Uh, Just some uh, pro football reference numbers. Uh, He had 52 interceptions in 215 games, 205 passes defense, 908 tackles. So another good tackler. Yeah, I mean, he he fits right into that mold with Charles Woodson. He's he's sort of like that same type of guy, same basic body build, same basic style. You know, you know, was an outstanding tackler. I don't remember anybody once you once he got a hold of you, that was pretty much it. You know, you wasn't really going to go anywhere with him, and um, he was just such of a great, great defensive back, such a solid performer. You know, for those Denver Bronco teams. Um, you say he got there in 99, if I'm not correct, if I'm correct. got there. Yeah, in 99. 99 is when he was came into the NFL, so he had to be with Washington in 1999. So I was thinking that he might have had a Super Bowl ring, that last Super Bowl team with Elway, but, I, but he wasn't. So I thought he did for some reason, but – Right, you know, because ninety nine that sounds about right when he was when he left when he graduated and came to the NFL out of Georgia. So, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, that's right. Because I thought he might have had a Super Bowl ring with the Broncos, you know, you know, doing that. But he was in that time period, like after after Elway, but before Manning. So, right, yeah, he uh, he left Washington. He played for Washington in two thousand three, two thousand four. He played for Denver all the way to twenty thirteen. So ten years with the Broncos. Right. Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Now, what do you think about him? Should we, should we give him a spot on that list or do you want to come back to him? I'll, I'll come back to him. Cause there's a couple others, you know, that I think that are deserving, but Chad Bailey is basically, you could probably, you kind of like a pencil him in as a possible, 
you know, you, you, you could actually erase it, you know, but just pencil him in as a, as a, as a finalist for the top 10. All right. We'll put him back so we can He'll be one of those uh, people we'll come back to and talk about uh, and deliberate about to see if uh, we can convince one another if he should be on or not. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we have a couple more uh, DBs that are in the hall of fame that we probably ought to talk about. How about Ty law? He wore the number for 13 seasons. Ty Law, Mr. I fought the law and the law won. Um, <laughs> a little ESPN reference there. Um, Ty Law, for, um, New England Patriots defensive back, was a was basically the defensive captain of that team with you know with that that very first Belichick Super Bowl run with him, Willie McGinnis, uh uh, Bruschi and those guys, that was just, he was like the linchpin of those great, um, in the early dynasty, uh, Patriots. And he was, and wasn't he part of the Bella, uh, Parcells Patriots team too that went to the Super Bowl against Green Bay? I, I believe he, he may have been. 95 is when he came in the league with New England. I think Parcells might have been there then. Yeah, I think because they went in 90, 96, 96, 97. Because I was still in college when they played in New Orleans. I was actually in New Orleans for the Super Bowl. I didn't go to the game, but the game was in New Orleans and I was around the Superdome doing that, doing doing the soup doing that Super Bowl. That's the only Super Bowl I didn't necessarily see on TV, but I was in the vicinity of the dome. So um yeah, Ty Law, another kind of on the smallish side as far as like a DB is concerned, but he he made up for it with his athleticism. Um, he, I know he had a lot of interceptions, you know, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he may have the Patriots record for interceptions in a career, either it might've been him or Michael Haynes, but I think it's, I think it's Ty Law that has the Patriots record for most interceptions in a career, um, which is impressive considering the, the lot of the, the number of DBs that came out of New England with, you know, uh, Maurice Hurst and, you know, um, if your name escapes me at the moment, but Cla- Claiborne, huh? Claiborne was what? what it- yeah, 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 exactly. Um, that's who I was thinking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, they had some great DBs and I think he has the team record for most interceptions as a Patriot. And, um, you know, I don't know if Patriots retire numbers, but that number 24 for the red, white, and blue for those New England Patriots teams should go up there in the rafters over there at Gillette Stadium. He's definitely deserving. Yeah, his his numbers, according to Pro Football Journal, 53 interceptions for his total career with all the teams he played for. He had a couple stints with the Jets and the Kansas City, I believe, after the Patriots. Uh, 203 total games, 165 passes defenses, 838 tackles. Another great tackler uh, from the uh, cornerback position. Very hard-nosed tackler from what I remember of Ty Law um, playing in those um, – playing in the AFC East um, – you know, once upon a time, you used to call it the AFC lease, but that's another story for another day. But the AFC East with those, you know, right at the time when the Dolphins were kind of like on the decline, the Bills were on the decline, and, and you know, the Jets were kind of like, you know, trying to get things, something started. But he, but Law was the anchor of that defense with Teddy Bruschi and, 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 and McGinnis and, and those guys. So, you know, Ty Law was just, just, just a solid, solid, another solid, doable, durable uh, defensive back for those Patriot teams. 
most, most definitely. And another hall of famer, uh, from the defensive back. We'll put he, I'm going to put him on our standby list also, uh, because he's got some comparable numbers to, uh, to uh, champ Bailey and, um, some of the other guys we're going to talk about here too, that aren't in the hall of fame. And we might have a good discussion on, on him. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, how about another defensive back that's in the hall of fame, Jack Christensen, uh, a great uh, old time player there too. Going back to going old school on me, 1950s, Jack Christensen, three time, um, three time NFL champ with the Detroit Lions in the 50s, uh, 46 picks um, over in his career. Uh, three time NFL champ with the Lions, you know, one back to back, you know, with those great Bobby Lane, Dick Knight train Lane Lions teams, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with him and Night Train Lane, um, one thing about it that you're going to get, if you're going to catch a pass over the middle against either one of these two guys, you are going to get hit. You know, you're going to like it because they were two hard-nosed defensive backs playing in a hard-nosed, gritty city in Detroit and playing at, at Tiger Stadium or Brick Stadium at the time. And you play a game over there in December and January, that rock hard dirt surface at the old Tiger Stadium. You're going to feel it when you hit the ground. You're going to feel it from them and you're going to feel it from when you hit the ground. You know, it, it, another great old time football stadium, it, it breaks stadium. But um, Jack Christensen, uh, didn't he go into broadcasting after his career? He, he may have. I'm not that familiar with his broadcasting career. Uh, you know, I, I don't remember him doing exactly, but he very well could have. And have also, I think, isn't he now I'm, I may be stretching here, but I think, I'm thinking that he is the father of Todd Christensen, the former tight end of the Raiders. That's I'm a possibility, thinking, too. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I think I remember hearing somewhere that Todd Christensen, it, if he's elected, they could be the first father son duo in the Hall of Fame, possibly. Again, wow. it may be a reaching or whatever, but I'm just I'm just curious about that because I, when I was doing my research, I tried to see, figure out are they related somehow? You know, because that would be pretty cool. Yeah, it you know? definitely would be. It would be. I'll I'll do some research on uh, as we're talking here. But the couple, I mean, you talked about the the Detroit. Uh, well, you talk about Oakland and the Packers defensive backfield at the time. I mean, the, how about the uh, Detroit Lions at the time? You, know, you had Jack Christensen, Dick Nighttrain Lane, you know, two of the greatest defensive backs ever. And Dick LeBeau was a defensive back, too, who had a lot of interceptions in that uh, Detroit Lions backfield of the defense, too. So, you know, hey. and I think while we're talking about it, we, we I, it would be I would be remiss if we didn't mention the, the network's godfather, Artie Chapman, who's a big Lions fan. I know know this part of he's gonna probably rewind back and forth, but <laughs> I got to give credit where credit is due. Those Lions teams in the fifties was as hard nosed as you could possibly have. I mean, this was a very very hard nosed football team, and it's a shame that they haven't won more because of for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's the Bobby Lane curse, who knows, but uh, which is an urban legend. But again, they've had so many great players over the years. They just could never put it together. But those teams in the fifties that seem to go head to head with the Browns every year for an NFL championship, that was like one of the underground rivalries in NFL history, Cleveland and Detroit. Um, 
and you talk about two hard-nosed cities, two hard-nosed teams, two in and, and, and Christensen fit right into that mode of the tough, hard-nosed, hardcore, you know, uh, defense with the with you know with guys like like uh, Schmidt, you know, that was just the, the bedrock of that defense of the 1950s. Joe Schmidt, I couldn't remember his first name, but Joe Schmidt, Hall of Famer. You know, hardcore, hard-nosed defense over there, you know, with Dick LeBeau with the interceptions and Dick Knight train lane with the neck train necktie. Um, <laughs> you know, just 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 hard-nosed, old-school, knuckles-in-the-dirt football, which I love. Oh, absolutely. It had to be quite the, the games to watch, uh, those guys hitting at it. Uh, yeah, I think uh, he he's another one that I would suggest that, he should probably go go on the list because I, yeah, I think so too. I mean, with three world championships under his belt, with the Lions playing alongside Dick Knight, Train Lane, you know, with those with those great teams in Detroit, you you kind of you 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 have to put it, put him in that on that list of the greatest to wear number twenty four. Absolutely. So we have four spots t- taken up, and just a reminder who we have: Willie Brown, Willie Wood. Uh, Charles Woodson and Jack Christensen are our first four spots that we have taken up on our, our uh, top 10 list of the greatest number 24s in NFL history. Okay. We have, uh, let's see, it looks like one hall of famer that we have not talked about yet and probably won't talk much on because we've spent a lot of time on, on some other numbers and that's Johnny blood McNally. Johnny blood only wore the number 24 for two seasons. Looks like 1929, 1930 is what I have him down as. Yeah, with the uh, Green Bay Packers. Yeah, uh, yes. he wore it with the with the Green Bay Packers uh, for those two years, and um, you know he was again played halfback. You know, but you know we talked about him before on you, or at least you have on his show on your show, and you've been really deep down into his into his career, and love listening to him and the, how he got the name Johnny Blood. You know, I mean that's just a just a cool name johnny blood you know <laughs> it really yeah. Is. yeah we had uh, warren rogan on one of the programs that johnny blood was on and he just uh had some excellent story on how he got that name so make sure you go back and listen to that i think it was number 10 or 11 that uh we had him on uh, with warren rogan and uh great stories that warren told about him absolutely okay uh so we'll I'm not, I'm not sure that Johnny Blood's going to make our list, though, with only two years uh, and so many other great players. And Johnny's made some other lists uh, with numbers. So I'm going to probably say we're going to take him out of consideration for, for this because there's so many other good players we haven't even talked about that aren't in the Hall of Fame. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, you know, I kind of I, I, I do agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, if we want to, do you want to stay on topic of the uh, defensive backs? Because we have some defensive backs that are not in the Hall of Fame yet, uh, but had some uh, great careers and were the number 24 for a while. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, Darrell Revis and Everson Walls in particular. Well, Everson Walls, I remember watching him as a kid, you know, because we had a lot, we caught a lot of Dallas Cowboy games growing up in Louisiana. And, it seemed like every pass that they tried to test Everson Walls with, either he got an interception or he got a knock, or he knocked it away. That was the one defensive back on the Cowboys. You know, even though you had uh, Durison, I mean, uh, Thur- Dennis Thurman on the other side, um, you had Everson Walls there that was just so incredibly 
uh, durable and and just just out out absolute just terror defensively for the those cow for that secondary of the Cowboys in the late seventies early eighties mainly the eighties you know but he just seemed like when I was a kid it seemed like every time somebody tried to test him on that outside either he got an interception or he just knocked the ball down it seemed like every time I know it wasn't every time but it just seemed like that as a kid just learning the game of football watching him. Well, let's look at the numbers from uh, Pro Football Journals. Uh, 57 interceptions in 186 games, 207 passes defense. So you did see quite a few of those and 759 tackles. Yeah, um, Everson Walls was just, 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 just a beast on the outside. You know, like in, in, in Dallas in the early '80s had like a really good defensive secondary. You know, and it just would just they were just snake bit in the playoffs. You know, victimized by the Eagles and then the 49ers and you know that sort of thing. But you know, there was just that defensive secondary was I could I would put that up against anybody's defensive secondary, especially during that era of football when passing was still kind of at a premium, but people were starting to throw the ball a little bit more. And, you know, it wasn't as physical, but still it was still kind of a a type of game that would let that that you saw was starting to evolve into more of a passing game that we see today. Yeah, the, the uh, Cowboys were sort of in a tough spot there in the 80s uh, whenever some wall played because you had, uh, you had to contend with the 49ers who were at the top of their game uh, with Bill Walsh and, and company and Joe Montana and Steve Young for a little bit. And you had the Giants on the rise. Uh, Bill Parcells came in and you know, brought LT and Phil Sims, and you know, they, they were in their division. So that was a, a tough era to be a Cowboy. And uh, even though they had good teams, it was tough for them to uh, get up in the Super Bowl and win it. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I remember, like I said, I remember watching those games. My neighbor, who was a big Dallas Cowboys fan, and watching him, you know, watch those games with him and, you know, just being so disappointed that when they lost, you know, when we were kids, I used to laugh at him, but he used to come back to where at least my, at least, I'm there. At least the Cowboys are there. Where are your Chargers? I'm like, okay, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's hard to do that smack talk when your team's not supporting you, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I've been there a number of times. Trust me. <laughs> okay, I'm going to put uh, Everson Wall on our standby list, too, because he's an interesting character. Yeah. Now, how, now, Revis is on there, and I was kind of surprised at Revis's numbers compared to all these other great uh, – uh, cornerbacks and safeties that we talked about. Uh, Darrell Revis in his career only had 29 interceptions, 145 games, a lot less games than everybody else, 140 passes defense, 497 tackles. Uh, but there's probably some pretty good reason why his numbers were down so much compared to the others. People were trying to stay away from Revis Island. That's what yeah. that was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> he was, I think his, one, he was like the one player where his rep, where his reputation preceded him. Um, great player. I mean, it wasn't that he he wasn't just a good player just by you know people talking. He was a great player. Period. And but his reputation was you know we're gonna stay away from him. You know, but not too many people tested him. But when they did test him, they found maybe he can get some success. The one thing that I remember watching about him was that he wasn't as sure of a tackler as you would want to have as a DB that has that type of reputation. Now, you catch a pass like I've seen guys catch a pass on a quick slant in front of him 
and he kind of he hits them but doesn't wrap, wrap up all the time and that was his knock you know that you could catch passes on him just don't try to test him deep and don't test him often because he, he was one of those guys that you may catch two or three on him in the beginning of the game but don't go to him like in the fourth quarter because he can't shut you down because he was just that brainy of a player yeah he may not have had the brawn of some other defensive backs but Darrell Rivas had the intellect that could figure out a defense that could figure out an offense diagnose a, a, a pass route that may be coming from a certain receiver and could just jump that route and just victimize you at the end of a game, much less in the first quarter, first part of a game, he's just trying to figure you out. So that was his forte of his being just, just a brainy type, just a brainy type uh, defensive back. Yeah. He just had that sixth sense to, uh, you know, figure out where a, where a quarterback's can go with the ball, uh, estimated the routes of receivers and he could jump them and had that real quick uh, speed, you know, just a makeup speed to contend on passes, you know, just a great player, great defender. Uh, right, like you said, quarterbacks did not throw his way very often. That's why his numbers are so much lower than uh, some of the other guys we talked about. Right. Okay. We'll absolutely. put, uh, we'll put Darrell on the, uh, the standby list also here uh, with the others. Now there's another defensive back, uh, that's kind of an interesting one. And actually the, uh, the pro football journal has it as one of their top uh, cornerbacks of all time. They have like a list of like 35 and Gary green makes that list of uh, one of being one of the top uh, cornerbacks. Uh, do you have anything on Gary green? Well, not too much. Um, I, I don't really know that much about Gary green. Uh, tell me about him. Well, according his numbers, according to the Pro Football Journal, he had 33 interceptions, 132 games he played, 131 passes defense, and 517 tackles. Now, he played from 1977 to 1983 uh, in the league, and it was all with the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. I'm sorry, uh, seven years with the Chiefs and two with the Rams uh, at the end of his career. Okay. But, uh, I think the reason why I hadn't really known too much about Gary Green was that he played for the Chiefs. And I remember watching the Chiefs as a kid every now and then. We really didn't watch the Chiefs all that much growing up because being in the South and in the Midwest, I didn't catch a lot of uh, Chiefs games growing up, but the name Gary, I mean, like now I'm thinking about it, I'm starting to start to pick up, put the pieces together. And I do kind of remember that, but you know, he was a defense, he was part of that, you know, the Chiefs team with Joe Delaney and Jeff Fuller was a quarterback and, you know, but they really wasn't had a lot of success during the time that he was there from what I remember. Yeah, they, they didn't have real strong teams, but he was a, a real solid player. Uh, like I said, he doesn't really have the numbers to uh, probably get up there with the other guys, but I thought he was definitely worth uh, mentioning. I was yeah. talking about all these uh, great DBs. Uh, you know, there, there's some, some other ones uh, in there that didn't really have uh, super good numbers. You know, like Sean Springs is an interesting uh, one to talk about. But it's about the same numbers as Gary Green he had 33 interceptions, a uh, couple touchdowns, you know, pick sixes off of them, 169 mm -hmm. games, a real solid player for Seattle and Washington at the end of his yeah. career with New England. But yeah. uh, don't know that he makes the list uh, like uh, Gary Green. 
Yeah, another uh, corner uh, that played for the Chiefs that that you mentioned, um, and he's—I don't think he's going to make the list. He he probably won't make our list, but I just want to mention him. Um, sure. Who has the coolest nickname of anybody to ever play defensive back, and that's Fred the Hammer Williamson. Um, okay. Fred, I mean his career. I mean, first of all, he was no, he was basically the a prototype defensive back for the night for, for this era of football, even though he played in the sixties because of his swagger and his trash talk, you know, and he, and of course he was the, the subject of sideline banter doing Super Bowl one, when he got knocked out of the game, and even though of all the trash that he talked before Super Bowl one, and he's became more famous after his career then during his career, I think, because he became an actor, he was in a number of uh, action movies during the 1970s, and not to mention that nickname, The Hammer. And and that was just somebody that he was like one of the first actors that I learned played pro football when I was a kid, watching some of his movies. And I thought that I just wanted to just mention Fred The Hammer Williamson. Now, you probably won't make our list, but it was just somebody I just wanted to mention. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we, that's what we want to do. We want to make sure we're preserving our football history and mentioning some of these guys. Uh, the other two uh, defensive backs, uh, they're basically safeties. I have is, or I'm sorry, one's a safety, one's a corner. I have Adrian Wilson, who is, uh, I'm not sure that he's going to make the list, but what a great player Adrian Wilson was, you know, most of his career with all of his career with the Cardinals in Arizona. And, you know, his, he ended up for his career, you know, 27 interceptions from the safety spot, not too bad, two pick sixes, 508 uh, return yards off those interceptions. He's a good one. And uh, another one that's a contemporary is still, still playing is Stefan Gilmore. Uh, again, I'm not sure his numbers are going to get him in uh, to the conversation of our top 10, uh, but he has had uh, nine years uh, wearing the number 24, uh, 25 interceptions and two pick sixes. Yeah, I mean, uh, Stephon Gilmore with his, I mean, he's a very talented defensive back right now. Um, he's, if you give us a, like another about maybe two or three years, he may be end up on the, may end up on the list. You know, with could you know, uh, he, he could very well could end up on the list in about another two or three years. Uh, very very solid defensive back for New England. Um, instrumental in a couple of AFC playoff games a couple of years ago, from what I remember, came up with a big play a couple of years ago. Who's I remember the play, but I don't remember who they exactly were. I think they're playing Baltimore. Might have been. He came up with a big interception late in the game to seal the win for New England. Um, but Stephon Gilmore just a great, great, outstanding defensive back. Another one that's in the mold of that Charles Woodson type. Absolutely. And I would be remiss. I almost forgot about uh, this gentleman because he definitely needs mentioned too. is Rosie Taylor of uh, the 1960s, you know, Chicago bears is where he's most famously wore the number 24 with, but he had uh, 32 interceptions. Remember this is 1960s, 486 yards of return, three pick sixes uh, for the Chicago bears. Another team with uh, just a bevy of great defense, a great bevy of defensive players, period. You know, you had Rosie Taylor on one side. You had uh, on the other side, J.C. Caroline. Uh, and, of course, terrorizing up the middle is um, from the University of uh, Tennessee, um, Doug Atkins. Uh, just that was, and then plus, not to mention all of the great 
the linebackers and stuff that was part of those Bears teams that won the 63 championship. Um, one thing that I've always would love to do is impossible to do, but I would love to do one day is figure out. And, and if they would have had the Super Bowl in 1963, could you imagine this study in contrast between the monsters of the midway defense of the Bears in the Super Bowl playing against the AFL champion San Diego Chargers with Hadel, Allworth, Lowe, Lincoln, Kusurik at tight end, one of the greatest offensive collections of star players ever in the history of pro football against the Monsters of the Midway. What would that matchup be like? Oh, it would have been interesting to watch, that's for sure. One side on, on the sideline, you have George Hallis. The other sideline, Sid Gilman. Right. Uh, yeah. The, the passing offense coming to life uh, against the – a team that just like to you know really run the ball and play good defense, you know that that would have been an interesting matchup. You're right, you know. And then you on defense, you had Ernie Ladd, you had uh, Earl Faison, you had Chuck Allen, um, Charlie McNeil at defensive back. You know, you had some really star power on the, both of those squads. You know, and and, and with, with the Bears, you had Billy Wade at quarterback, Mike Dick at tight end, um, Willie Gallimore at running back. You know, you had some really talented on both sides of that squad on both sides of the ball on both squads so well that would have been like that would have been like a really cool first Super Bowl if they would have had it in 63 <laughs> absolutely it sure would have uh okay um I think that's about all the the defensive backs and people on the defensive side of the ball that uh I mean there's a, bl- a plethora of other ones but I mean the substantial players that really had an impact that would be under consideration do you have any others uh, defensively before we get into the offensive guys uh defensively just a couple I think one that you think you one that you you've left out and I think you left them out on purpose and that's Larry Brown of the Cowboys oh yeah oh boy (laughs) (laughs) he had a great three interceptions in the Super Bowl against your against your Steelers uh, I, I, I forgive you for trying to, you know, for, for leaving him out. That's okay. You know, we, we know. I'm not no, going to tell anybody. Um, but uh, three interceptions in the Super Bowl against the, against the Steelers in Super Bowl 30 uh, against Neil O'Donnell. Um, great career, you know. I mean, but his career was kind of short, not that long. He had that one really great game against the Steelers in the Super Bowl on the biggest stage. Uh, Johnny Sample of the Jets, um, mostly for the Jets. He played for the Steelers and the Redskins in the NFL, but the Jets in the AFL won a Super Bowl, won a championship with Super Bowl three as their defensive back. And um, one more uh, is uh, Booker Edgerson. I'm, a, I'm an AFL guy. So Booker Edgerson played for the Bills and Broncos, won back-to-back AFL titles with the Bills as a defensive back. You know, on the other side from uh, Bobby Bird, another great defensive back. I think Edgerson was part of the um, all-AFL team in the 1960s uh, as a defensive back. I think second-team all-AFL. Uh, for the all-AFL oh, team, the deck, um, deck, all-decade team, I think it is. And um, just a great, solid player. You don't hear too much about those DBs from the AFL, but he was stuck out as, like, one of the really good ones and won two FL, AFL titles with the Bills. Uh, of course, both of them against the Chargers. So, hey, it is what it is. 
So we kind of even on that. I, you know, I did mention Edgerson, and then we had a little moment of pain. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and probably another DB worth mentioning that I, I sort of remiss on, and I'm glad you mentioned Larry Brown too, and in, in the other gentleman you talked about, but uh, Jonathan Joseph, who's uh, just played yeah. even last year, uh, 32 interceptions, 643 return yards, seven touchdowns off of his interceptions. Uh, you know, pretty good numbers there. Uh, not quite sure he's going to make our list. You know, made two Pro Bowls in his career, uh, but still an interesting uh, person to talk to. He had some substantial uh, games on the defense. Right, exactly, exactly. Jonathan Joseph, you know, played most of his career, played with the Texans, and I think also with the Bengals, I believe it was. Uh, boy, let me – I just closed them up here. I think you're right. Definitely the Texans, and he did have another team before that. Uh, yeah, Cincinnati for five seasons. You're You're all over it. You know, um, you know, just just another solid all around defensive back. You know, um, you know, I'm thinking with the Texans, I think I think in the process of having a fire sale down there. Um, but uh, Jonathan Joseph had been a solid DB for all of his career with with Houston and Cincinnati. Yeah. Okay. Most definitely. Um, okay. Now, why don't we switch over to the offensive side of things? Because we have some really good players that played offense too that were uh, number twenty four. And right, exactly. You, you started uh, talking a little bit about Marshawn Lynch, and maybe we ought to get a little bit more detail about uh, his career. Well, Marshawn Lynch, I'm going to tell you, um, if you notice behind me, there's a Saints uh, poster or whatever behind me, and I have to put that in here because if I don't, my wife would kill me because I have <laughs> to represent the Saints somewhere. Um, and she was a Marshawn Lynch fan until – Beastquake, uh, where he broke every defensive tackle. He broke every tackle the Saints laid on him for like seventy some yards. That which is like the 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 signature moment of his career, uh, with uh, which was a career loaded with signature moments. Um, start off with Buffalo. Uh, played a little while there, but he made his name with with Seattle. Obviously, uh, won a Super Bowl, won a uh, Super Bowl ring with the uh, with the Seahawks. Uh, just a power power runner. Came from the University of California. Um, just an all around, just great power runner. This, which is something that you really don't see too much of in the National Football League anymore. Right, and you said that one Super Bowl probably should have had a second Super Bowl if they would have gave him the ball instead of throwing that pass at the end of a, the one Super Bowl against the Patriots. I was like, I think people like Lombardi and Hallis and those guys were basically spinning in their graves, like, why don't you run the ball in that situation on the one-yard line? And you hadn't been able to stop the run all day. So that was one of the things that I was yelling at the TV about when I – Remember watching that Super Bowl. Um, but yeah, Marshawn Lynch, you know, like I said, my wife was a big fan of his until that moment. So when that moment happened against the Saints in that playoff game, that pretty much ended it for her. Yeah. And uh, he, he's his career was pretty elusive, but he ran for over 10,000 yards, 10,413 yards in his career, a 4.2 yard average, 85 touchdowns, uh, outstanding career. Uh, for beast mode. Yeah, man, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. I mean, he was a uh, player at the University of California, I think came right after Aaron Rodgers left 
to go to the NFL. I think that's when he attended, when he started attending the University of California. Um, that would have been, I think he was there also at the same time. I can't think of a receiver from from the Eagles that attended uh, Cal at the, at the same time, but they had like a really loaded team at the University of California at that time. And um, Marshawn Lynch was just the linchpin of that offense you know, on any offense that he was, especially in, in Seattle, because if they wanted to, you know, uh, slow the game down, just give it to him, and he's going to break like two or three tackles, you know, on every single play. And that's just such, such of a hard runner that he is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we had another interesting back, uh, where the number 24. How do you think about uh, Freeman McNeil? He was another interesting one. The, it's a wonder why the Jets never won more with that offense and Freeman McNeil in the backfield. Freeman McNeil is probably one of the most underrated running backs in the entire decade of the 80s. Um, people don't remember Freeman McNeil that much because the Jets didn't have a lot of success, which is just a mystery to me on why they didn't. Um, I was a so I was watching, I was a big football fan during the 80s, watching them, and it just seemed like they lost playoff games that they had no business losing. And it wasn't through, it wasn't Freeman McNeil's fault. I mean, he was just a solid, solid running back for that Jets team in the 80s. Um, but you had like a great defense with Gastineau and Marty Lyons and uh, Joe Klecko and, that, and the New York Sack Exchange. And the offense was just stacked with so many great players. Wesley Walker and Al Toon with the receivers. Uh, Ken O'Brien with the quarterback. Fullback with Johnny Hector, who's from my hometown. Um, just just an all-around, just, just, a, just a stacked offense, but just for some reason just couldn't get it together in the playoffs. You had Mickey Shuler at tight end. Um, just just an all-around, just an outstanding play, outstanding team for the Jets, but they just for some reason just couldn't put it together in the postseason. Yeah, it definitely wasn't uh, Freeman Neal's fault because he ended up having 8,074 rushing yards, 4.5 yards per carry, 38 touchdowns in his career. Uh, great, great running back uh, Freeman McNeil was for the Jets. Yeah, I mean, no question about it. No question about it with with, with Freeman McNeil. Um, sort of a sort of a in, sort of a tweener. He kind of he could juke you, but at the same time, he can't run over you. So just just a, just a, just a very serviceable running back could beat you any way. He could run through you or run around you. He had the speed to do it and the power to do it. Absolutely. Okay. Um, who else do you have uh, offensively that you'd like to talk about here that might make our list? Another running back who probably can't make our list is Robert Smith of the Vikings. Oh, um, yes. um, was part of that uh, team in the late 90s, Minnesota, great, those great Minnesota teams with Randall Cunningham at quarterback. And he had Randy Moss and Chris Carter, and he was the running back, you know, toting the ball for them. Um, very, very good running back. You know, very durable. Uh, well, actually, not really all that durable because he did suffer a lot of injuries. And I think that his career would have been so much better, you know, had he been, you know, had he had more carries or more rushing yards. You know, he would have had, a, you know, he definitely would have made our list as far as like top 10. But Robert Smith was a 
definitely a decent, decent running back. Better than a lot of people may remember, but he was often hampered by injuries from what I remember. Uh, did he, I don't, didn't have him wearing a number 24. We talked about him on a, a previous, um, edition. And I know mm-hmm. he had the whole career with the Vikings. I'm trying I'm to, another Robert Smith then. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was, he was number 20 for a little bit, but number 26 was his most famous. That's number. right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, that's why he, he may make the list, but, uh, wasn't wearing the number no, 24. No. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Smith's okay. a pretty common name, though, so there probably was some other Robert Smiths in there, I'm sure. Yeah. But I'll give you another one. I don't think he's going to make our list as far as, like, top ten, but he's he had a very interesting uh, trivia question uh, with very, very interesting trivia, which is Mel Farr, another running back of the Lions in the late 60s, early 70s, wore number 24, power running back for the Lions. And the piece of trivia is – what listed by Rolling Stone magazine, I'm a big music buff. Rolling Stone magazine had listed Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On, as one of the greatest albums ever. On the title track, there's Marvin Gaye talking with two other guys right at the beginning of the song. Mel Farr and Lynn Barney were the two guys that he was talking to at the beginning of the song. Oh, no kidding. Okay. <laughs> and Marvin Gaye wanted to play football. He tried out for the Lions, actually. But luckily for us, music connoisseurs, he didn't make it. But Mel Farr was a great running back for the Lions in the 60s. I, you know what? I think now you say that, uh, we had Arnie Chapman on with the number 20s, and we talked about Lem Barney. And he, he did bring that up about uh, Lem Barney being with on Martin Vingay's uh, soundtrack for uh, what's going on. So, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. The uh, the two arts, you know, sports and uh, the music arts are colliding here. World's colliding. <laughs> That's it. That's it. I, I'm a big music buff, and you know, R and B and classic R and B and jazz are my two are my two strong suits right there. Well, you're you're definitely uh, the sports and the, the trivia with the music. You're bringing those up like crazy here. Uh, I had another interesting uh, one. I don't think he'll make the list, but uh, Otis Armstrong. Is uh, another running back uh, that had some some success in the league. He had uh, forty four hundred yards, uh, over forty four hundred yards rushing, twenty five touchdowns. Uh, really had a, a a decent career in the seventies uh, with the Denver Broncos. Yeah, he was the running back after um, Floyd Little, and he yes. was the feature back right after Floyd Little. Um, he was kind of like that, you know, kind of a scat back kind of running back during that time. Um, you know, he was part of that Super Bowl team that made it to the Super Bowl against Dallas and in New Orleans. He was on that team. So he was just such of a great, great running back um, doing, the, you know, doing those doing the Broncos years when they were just trying to figure out things. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, did you have anybody else you wanted to bring up before we go into our deliberations and come up with our uh, top 10 here? Um, one more 24, who was a Super Bowl MVP wearing 24, but he wore another number for bulk of his career. And that's Otis Anderson. Oh, yes. Yeah. Otis Anderson is another good one. Yes. You know, he played for the Cardinals for a long, long time, wore the number 32. But when he went to the Giants, got a Super Bowl ring in Super Bowl 25, wearing the number 24. 
you know, power, another power running back, you know, was the, the, was the key cog in that Giants attack, you know, winning Super Bowl 25, giving Parcells and the Giants their second Super Bowl. Yes. Yeah, definitely uh, another great back there for to talk about. But I'm not sure that those, those backs uh, like him and uh, some of the other ones are going to make that, that list because these right. DBs are pretty dominant in this. Uh, yeah, with the number, that's a, that's a defensive backs that, uh, number, number 24. That's a, that's a great DB number, 24. Right. Okay. Well, let's uh, go and review here. We've got four spots all tied up. Uh, in our, our top 10. And we said that's Jack Christensen, Charles Woodson, Willie Wood, and Willie Brown. And we, some of the guys that we said we were going to come back around to, uh, Champ Bailey, uh, Ty Law, Darrell Rivas, Lenny Moore, Everson Walls, and Marshawn Lynch is uh, some we might come back to here. So let's see how many that is. Is that more than six? Two, three, four, five, six. It's like seven of them. So basically we're going to eliminate one of those names to uh, get to our top 10 is what it looks like. Okay. Um, I think Lenny Moore should be on the list. I, I agree with you there. I definitely think Lenny Moore should be on that list. Also uh, Marshawn Lynch. Okay. I agree with that one too. So there is six of them. We have four more names to come up with that. Uh, I'll give you those names again, you know, Everson Walls, Revis Law and Champ Bailey. I think Champ Bailey probably ought to be on the list. Yeah, I, I do. I do agree with that as well, as well as Ty Law. You know, I, I do agree with Ty Law getting on that list as well. Okay, that gives us eight. And well, you know what? It looks like everybody, maybe my count was wrong because I two spots left and I have two uh, X's still there. So that's uh, Revis and Neverson Walls would, would be our ninth and tenth, it looks like. Yeah. I don't see anybody else we talked about. I'm, I'm sorry about that. I gave you a wrong count. We did have 10 and we didn't know it. <laughs> All right. Well, was not strong suit either. So, you know, so don't feel bad. <laughs> well, hey, we, uh, I think we did it. That, that was a good discussion. And uh, we really got some uh, good players on there for that top 10 list. And uh, yeah, I, I really do agree with that. You know, the, the, that this top 10 list is, is right up there. Great number 24s and fittingly on March 24th. So, yeah. Okay. Hey, that's the day we're recording this. So yes, <laughs> it'll be coming out uh, a little bit later than that, uh, right before yeah. Easter, we hope. Um, now let's talk about the historically speaking podcast. Uh, you alluded to it a little bit of what you, you got some good things cooking here, getting ready to come up with what you share with the listeners, what they can expect and uh, can tune into for historically speaking. Well, I mean, it, it, historically speaking, is some is 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 my show that I put together pretty much, not necessarily on the fly. I have like ideas that I bump around in my head that I'm going that I normally put together. Um, but as the and my Twitter feed is basically what fuels the show. You know, whatever I put on on Twitter that which is important for you to check out, by the way, which is historically SP two on Twitter. Um, my show is my. My Twitter feed basically drives the show as far as content is concerned. And I would pick like one thing during that week that I would like to focus on as far as like the main event on the top five and the shout out. Um, this week is, is on the, the show that that's on this week is the show is basically my baseball opening day special. And we in 
and like I alluded to before, the Pirates um, having the first all-black all Hispanic lineup happened 50 years ago this year. September, actually it happened September 1st, 1971 at Three River Stadium. I believe it was against the Mets. And um, I wanted to highlight that since this is the 50th anniversary of that. And plus it was on their way for, to the Pirates' fourth World Series victory. Uh, later that year, they ended up beating Baltimore in seven games. Um, and that was the Roberto Clemente Showcase World Series. And um, that is something that you could look forward to, as I'm going to be talking about since we're getting closer and closer to, since we get, since we're right in the middle of March Madness, I'm going to be talking a lot of college basketball history, as well as some NBA history, you know, and plus some little sprinkles of football and other sports sprinkled in. So stay tuned, man. It's a, it's a never ending process, but it's a never ending process that I'm a big and I'm passionate about. But it definitely shows in uh, your show because it is full of entertaining uh, uh, topics. Uh, the music gives you that great vibe. Your transitions are excellent. And uh, you really uh, have some great programs on there. And it's worth everybody to, as soon as you get done here, go over there to Sports History Network and click on that uh, Historically Speaking podcast and check out those episodes because they're definitely worth a listen. And you'll, I'm sure you'll want to subscribe to it just like I do to make sure you know as soon as they drop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Post it. Like I said, I'll drop every uh, Sunday. Um, and uh, it's a show that is a labor of love for me. It's something I've always wanted to do. Um, and this is and sports history has been basically my my lifelong passion and, 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 and love ever since I was little. Well, Dana, we really appreciate you joining us tonight. And we're going to have to make sure when we get off the air here, we're going to sign you up for some more numbers because you are definitely bringing some uh, great uh, points of view, uh, some great history. And, and folks, a lot of this, you know, I'm sitting here watching Dana this whole time. He's not really going off of notes or anything. A lot of what he's telling you is coming out right off his brain, you know, calling out all these old lineups of teams from the 50s and 60s. Uh, really amazing. Uh, your recall is just a, a great and it shows in your passion for sports. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. That lends to the nickname my, my dad gave me when I was uh, 10 years old. He used to call me Howard Cosell. Okay. <laughs> you know, if they have like a question, my dad would be like, go ask Howard. And be like, Howard who? <laughs> Dana, but we call him Howard Cosell. When we talk about sports, call Howard. Yeah, he'll know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Your, your dad sounds like quite the character, you know. With the, and with the one thing that, that, that I'm going to be putting together um, on the week of Father's Day I'm having my dad and my godfather on because they're, that's my dad and my godfather. My godfather is pretty much the one who introduced me to sports history, who basically told me, if you're going to be a sports fan, you need to know it's history. And having those two on there is going to be a lot of fun for the listener. Not so much me, because it's going to be hard trying to keep that show together with those <laughs> two. When they Just try to keep them from arguing. So that's going to be a very entertaining show, to say the least. Okay, listeners, if you want, if we already got some precursor that we know his dad's a Raiders fan, his godfather's a Giants fan. They like to uh, have a little bit of a, a spat over that. So send your questions, DM uh, Dana on his Twitter feed. <laughs> get some fuel for that fire and we'll really make this an interesting show. We'll get the, those, uh, the fandom going there. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, Dana, I'm not, I'm not going to keep you any longer. I appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for joining us once again. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.